All right, will you please open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 13. Mark 13. The subject of Mark 13 is what is called the Olivet Discourse. It is the teaching that Jesus gave his disciples about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple and his end times return. It is called the Olivet Discourse because it takes place while they were sitting on the Mount of Olives to the east overlooking Jerusalem, overlooking the temple. Now, This message today is going to be a little bit different because we're going to cover all 37 verses of this chapter in one sermon, which essentially means that we're really compressing three sermons, three messages into one. And the reason that we're doing it this way is that this chapter, Mark 13, along with its parallels in Matthew and Luke, this has been parsed into every imaginable detail by the so-called prophecy experts of our day who are trying to do what Jesus right here in this passage actually says is impossible, and that is to know the timing of His return. Friends, I cannot even begin to tell you how many emails that I have received from from well-meaning Christians wanting me to watch this YouTube video or that YouTube video about a comet approaching earth, the rapture comet. Or they want me to read articles about how the rapture is going to occur during one of the Jewish feasts. I talked to a brother last year who was fairly confident that it was going to occur during the Feast of Trumpets last September, but we're still here. And that, friends, is why I want us to take a little different approach to the Olivet Discourse. We're going to let Jesus say what He says. And we're going to do our best to faithfully interpret it without all of the theatrics of modern prophecy experts. And you may be left with questions. I know that you will because I, every time I read it, am left with questions. So over the next few Sunday nights, not tonight, but beginning next Sunday evening, we're going to take this chapter and slowly work through it hopefully addressing and answering as best we can those questions. But this morning, I want us to get the big picture. And to that end, you may disagree or agree with some of or all of what I'm going to say. In fact, there are Christians who believe, friends, that everything in this chapter, everything in the Olivet Discourse was actually uh, fulfilled before the end of the first century. I even read an article this morning to that effect, that everything in the Olivet Discourse was already passed. But honestly, to suggest that notion, that this has all been fulfilled already, 
is to greatly diminish the magnitude of the events that Jesus predicts here. Friends, he's telling us about global unrest, global cosmic chaos, the likes of which we have not yet seen. As bad as we think it is, (laughs) it can always be worse, and it will one day get worse. So whether or not we agree about all the details of this chapter, my principle, my main concern this morning is that we walk away from this passage with a greater urgency to be ready for the future that is coming to our world and for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to do this using three main headings to work through these 37 verses. You'll notice they're not on the screen. If you don't bring a Bible to church, then you're out of luck today. Normally we put the verses on the screen, but not today because of the way we're doing this. If you have a Bible on your phone or hopefully in your lap, we're going to go through all 37 verses using three main headings. And the first is that we should not be alarmed by unsettled times. We should not be alarmed by unsettled times. Look at verse number 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So Jesus is leaving with his disciples. they're, They're leaving the temple. Remember, this is Passover week. This is probably Tuesday of Passover week. And as they leave... One of his disciples comments on the beauty of the temple. But Jesus has some very different words about the temple, some some harsh words for the temple. Remember, this is the temple that just the day before he had gone in and turned over the tables in, stirred up the religious leaders. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, Do you see these great buildings? Remember where they're at. They're on the Mount of Olives to the east. They're looking over and seeing the city of God, Zion. They see the temple. Some commentators say that from this vantage point, they could see straight into the sanctuary. Do you see these great buildings, Jesus says? There will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. So this most sacred place of Judaism where the one true and living God was worshipped, Jesus says, would be brought to rubble. And that is exactly what happened about 40 years later in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus, who later became emperor, surrounded Jerusalem with Roman troops He destroyed the city, and he burned the temple to the ground. Was Jesus a prophet? Oh yes, he was a prophet. And what he said came to pass just 40 years, just a few decades after he said it. The first century Jewish historian, you've heard me use him before, his name was Josephus. He he lived during this time. 
And he says this in one of his writings. He says, the whole city and the temple were raised, that means demolished, to the ground. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Jerusalem and the temple itself, just like Jesus said, had been dismantled, demolished. So that now when you visit Israel today, the only part left of the, this temple, Herod's temple, is a part of the western wall. That's it. Look at verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, by the way, these four mentioned here, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, are the, these are the four original disciples. They were the ones who encountered Jesus early on and followed him. They asked him privately, verse 4, tell us, when will these things, that's what we always want to know. When is it going to happen? When will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So these four disciples go to Jesus and they say, Lord, how will we know when this is going to take place? And then Jesus begins to answer their question in a very peculiar way, he actually uses the end of the temple, the destruction of the temple, as a prototype or a foreshadowing of the end of the age. Okay? Please hear and understand that. Jesus uses the destruction of the temple as a foreshadowing of the end of the age. That is the key to understanding the rest of this chapter. If you don't get that, you're not going to get the rest of this chapter. You're going to come away, your head scratching, wondering, what, what, what did he just say? Not me. What did Jesus just say? The destruction and end of the temple is a type that points beyond itself. Types are all in the Bible. They always point in, in the present to themselves, but they point beyond themselves something else. And the end of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, points beyond itself to the future return of Christ and the end. And the, the predictions about the temple and the return of the Lord in glory, they sort of weave in and out of each other, okay, in a single thread of teaching. that Jesus uses to answer the question of verse 4. When will these things be? We're still asking that question today. That's the reason guys like John Hagee can sell millions of dollars worth of books. Because all you have to do is just write an answer to that question, point some numbers out that nobody found before in the Bible, talk about the comments, and you get rich. We're not interested in doing that today. We're going to let Jesus speak for himself. He says in verse 5, 
And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Now why do you think Jesus would say that right after they just asked, When will these things happen? See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, underline this phrase, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. Is that the trumpet I hear sounding right now? I hope not. (laughs) When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, Jesus said. This must take place, but what? The end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning, he said, of the birth pains. Now notice that Jesus says that deception and war, listen, both of which we see in abundance today, don't we? He says they are not in themselves signs of the end. In fact, Jesus says, when you see this deception, these false Christ, those who come in my name claiming to be me, when you see war and rumors of wars, he says the end is not yet. But how often have we seen the prophecy experts talking about deception and war as sure tell signs of the end? Friends, they are not. Spiritual deception, violence, war have always been a part of life in a fallen world. In every single period of human history, we can find them. And so Jesus says, don't be deceived. When you see these things, it's not yet the end. Verse 9, but be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. Synagogue was the Jewish place of worship. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness. Note that word, witness. To bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father, the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will, not, will, will be saved. So these are scenarios described in these verses. These are scenarios that the disciples 
and future believers will face persecution that comes not only from the state, councils, kings, but also from the family, parents, brothers, siblings who deliver you up. And as they stand before the nations as witnesses of the gospel, many will be martyred. In fact, the word witness in the original language here comes from the word that means martyr. It's martus, martyria. Where we get our word martyr, one who dies for their faith, one who dies for Christ. It is a witness. It is a proclamation. Every head that has ever been beheaded for the sake of Christ has proclaimed the gospel. But Jesus says twice in this passage, do not be afraid. Verse 7, he says, do not be alarmed. In verse 11, he says, do not be anxious. Friends, do not be paralyzed by fear during unsettled times. That's what he's saying. And we desperately need to hear this today, don't we? Because so many Christians right now are paralyzed by fear. We're afraid of persecution. We're afraid of COVID. Afraid of getting sick. We're afraid of governmental overreach. We're afraid of dying. And Jesus says, do not let the unsettled times that you are living in unsettle you. Because His Holy Spirit will be with you every single step of the way. That's the big picture from this segment of Mark 13. Don't be unsettled by unsettled times. It's always been like this. The second thing that we see in this passage is that great tribulation will precede Christ's return. Great tribulation will come before Christ does. Verse 14, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, Preach a whole sermon on just that phrase. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Verse 16, let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Verse 17, alas, or your version may say woe or something. For the women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, verse 18, pray that it may not happen in winter. I think the King James Version may say something like, pray that your flight may not happen in winter. Of course, that's always given believers the idea that the rapture, you know, we don't want it to happen in the winter. That's got nothing to do with what he's talking about here. 
But these verses are difficult, aren't they? 14 through 18 in particular. What is this abomination of desolation? The abomination of desolation is a phrase that describes the blasphemous sacrilege of the temple. It was predicted by Daniel, the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, and it was first fulfilled by Antiochus IV in the 2nd century B.C. When he walked into the temple and set up an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig. Now that's blasphemous sacrilege. It was again later fulfilled by Titus. We mentioned him when he desecrated the temple in 70 A.D. And it will be fulfilled again when the Antichrist, whom I believe, and if you're in Revelation in our Sunday school class, you, you, you know, we, we've talked about this. Well, this, this Antichrist will be a real flesh and blood individual who will set himself up as God. Now, whether that's in a third rebuilt temple or whether it is in some profane act against the Christian faith, I do not know. But friends, this abomination of desolation will be fulfilled again. And prophecies that have multiple fulfillments are nothing new to Scripture. They are common in Scripture. Many layered prophecies that have present and future fulfillments all throughout the Old Testament. So the abomination of desolation then must in the future be the Antichrist who profanes the name of God among the people of God who are now the temple of God. You see. But what about this reference to the nursing mothers <laughs> and, and this stuff about winter that Jesus is talking about? Well, I think when you interpret it at face value, it simply means that when this happens, these events, this abomination of desolation, when these events happen, both in 70 A.D., which was still future to them, 40 years in the future, and future to us, what's coming, these times will be extraordinarily difficult for those trying to escape the suffering of that period. If you have nursing babies, if you are pregnant, you're going to have a harder time than someone who is just a single man out there who can just run off into the hills. You get that. These times will be extraordinarily difficult for those who are encumbered with extra burdens and cares. That's what he's saying. Verse 19. For in those days... Now notice the shift in the language here. So Jesus goes from talking about these things in verses 3 and 4 now to those days in verses 19 and 24. And this is significant, friends, because these things in context refer to the destruction of the temple. And then those days clearly refer to some future event or events of the end, beyond the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. 
And, and remember, there, there is some overlap. These threads, they, they weave in and out of each other and intertwine together in the fabric of what Jesus is teaching here in Mark 13 and all of it discourse. There is overlap. There's this past, future, past, future, past, future pattern. Verse 19, he says, In those days there will be such tribulation as, not, as has not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now. And never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Chosen One, or look, there He is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Verse 24, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. These verses describe the perilous nature of the tribulation period, which I believe the context demands is a specific interval of time. There are believers who think that the tribulation is just a wide, long, general period of history. I don't think so. We can have tribulation without being in the tribulation. See, I think what Jesus is talking about here is a specific interval of time that we haven't come to yet. It will be a time of unprecedented suffering, unprecedented deception that is spearheaded by the Antichrist, by the false Christ and his miracle-working false prophet so that no human being would be saved. Think about the gravity of what Jesus is saying, saying there. That if God were not to set a limit on those days, no one would be saved. No one would survive it. And when the cosmos itself begins to fall apart, look up because Jesus is coming. But friends, we don't, we don't seem to be there just yet, do we? I mean, according to what Jesus is describing in these verses. And we can point to cosmic signs in the sky and the eclipse here and a blood moon there. I remember, you know, remember Hagee and all these guys? I'm, I'm, don't listen to those guys. Don't read them. Don't watch them. 
They're making money off of, off of, off of us. Because they can just say, well, here's a blood moon. I read this morning uh, a different article. I've read several articles this morning. One of them had noted all the different modern-day teachers of prophecy who had predicted at, at least dates, if not dates, then periods of history in which the Lord was supposed to return from Hal Lindsey, Jack Van Ampey, all of them. And here we still are. And their predictions were false. And friends, in the Old Testament, when you prophesied something false, you were, you were killed because you were a false prophet. But they continue to do this because they know that they are speaking to a population that is extremely gullible and they will shell out all the money they have to know when will these things be. Don't believe, don't, don't believe it. When we see the cosmos itself beginning to fall apart, look up. Because then Jesus is on his way. And friends, that doesn't mean it will take centuries for this to happen either. We could wake up tomorrow to cosmic chaos. And so then, then this brings us then to our final point this morning that because we might wake up tomorrow to global cosmic chaos, we must discern the times so that we are ready. We must discern the times so that we are ready. Look at verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things, there it is again, these things, Taking place, you know that he is near. Some translations, if you have an NIV, it may say it is near. Just so you know, I looked in the Greek text this week. He is not in the Greek text. The reason that he is supplied there is because that next phrase, at the very gates. A person is usually at the gates, not an event. Which is why some translations say he is near, others say it is near. Verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now listen, you're looking at that verse, and I know that you guys in here have read that before, and you're wondering, and have wondered, what in the world does that mean? Because the generation that Jesus was talking to has been long dead. He just said these, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Remember, we have noted all throughout these verses about the language that Jesus uses. These things versus those days or that hour. And here he switches 
in verse 29 is language back to these things. So then the generation that he is referring to in verse 30 must then be the generation alive when the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70. Okay? Now, only John would have been alive when that happened because most of the other apostles were already dead, including the apostle Paul. But the generation that he was speaking to that was living when he was teaching here on the Mount of Olives, that generation would not pass away until these things, that which he was talking about, the temple being destroyed, had taken place. And that's exactly what happened. And there is a certainty in what he predicted because he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, if you try to interpret this any other way, we've got a real problem on our hands. Because we're still waiting for a lot of these things, excuse me, those days in Mark 13 to occur. But what he predicted about the temple would happen. It did happen. Verse 32. But concerning, here's another shift in language. I know this is not easy. Track with me. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What hour? What day? The day of His return. Not the day of the destruction of the temple. Not anything else, but the day of His return. No one knows, not the angels, not even Jesus Himself. But the Father. Now, immediately we're confronted with the theological problem, aren't we? If Jesus is God, then He's omniscient. Then there can't be anything that He doesn't know. So then why does He say that He doesn't know when that day will occur? Simple. It is simple, friends. But these are deep theological waters that we are wading into here. But we must acknowledge that the ignorance of Jesus here in this verse regarding His return is solely in terms of His incarnation as a human being, which included a voluntary but partial and temporary laying aside of His divine omniscience. Okay? In other words, when when God, the eternal Son of God, became man, we just celebrated Christmas, when, when God the Son became man, He voluntarily laid aside His divine omniscience, but only for a season. So when He was teaching this to His disciples, He could say, No one knows this, not even me, myself. Verse 33. Be on guard. 
that, that naturally follows, doesn't it? I mean, if Jesus Himself doesn't even know, then naturally the next step is going to be to tell His disciples to be on guard. Keep awake. Anybody falling asleep in here today? Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. He was a preacher. Stay awake. And with those two words, we finally come to the crux of the Olivet Discourse. It's not predicting times. It's not trying to find signs in the sky. These two words. Stay awake. Jesus is coming, so be ready. Four times in verses 33 to 37, Jesus says to be awake. There is no question that what He says will come to pass. Heaven and earth may pass away, and it will. But His words will not pass away, it is certain. And everything that He just told His disciples on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem... In 30, 33 A.D., somewhere around that period, will come to pass. Some of it already has. And my friends, the question before us this morning is, are we ready? Can we look at the world around us like the fig tree and discern that time is short? Jesus is coming. But is there something in this world that is making us spiritually drowsy so that we are not fully awake, sober-minded, and ready for the increasingly turbulent times that are ahead? Is it the trials of our day? Is it COVID? Is it inflation? Is it the uncertainty of the future that unsettles us so? That, that lulls us to sleep? <laughs> Is our lullaby song a treasured pleasure or the temporary comforts of this life? that make us spiritually sleepy. Friends, I hope not. I pray not. Romans 13, 11. Paul says, You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us then 
cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Time is short, friends. Time is short. Let us use our days to be ready for that moment when the sky splits open with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us look to Him for salvation today, not tomorrow. If you're young, if you're a teenager, if you're 12, if you're 10 or 7 or 14, do not think that you can get right later. Put off the works of darkness today, not tomorrow. Oh, that we would wake up today. Our hope is not, as the Jews in the first century, our hope is not in a beautiful temple. It's not in a church. It's not in St. Peter's Basilica. It's not in First Baptist. It's not in Park Bible Baptist. As beautiful as this building is, this thing's coming down one day too. Our hope is not in a prophecy expert. Those who have parsed all the details and all the Hebrew and the Greek and all the numbers. Our hope is in Christ alone who died in the place of those deserving only wrath and who extends grace and forgiveness to all who will look on Him in repentance and faith. Friends, He is our hope. At the end of the day, and at the end of the world, He is our hope. So that God would give us a wake-up call to believe on Him today. Let's pray.